Welcome to Education Conversations, where educators talk about the most important issues facing education. Our mission is to ignite your mission through the exploration of difficult, topic, difficult topics and relevant topics. We, when we come together, open ourselves to new ideas, we move closer together as people. Hi, everyone. Uh, Education Conversations with Joseph Moylan and Corey Thompson um, coming to you again uh, this week. And Corey, I would invite you to introduce our guest, if you would, please. Thank you so much, Joseph. It's a pleasure for me to introduce uh, Dr. Mark Hilgendorf, who has created an Institute for Teaching of History and Religion, and uh, the participants of that institute are residents of the North Shore and East Side area of the Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin area. Uh, Mark comes to us with an undergrad degree in history from UW-Madison, a master's in history at Northwestern, or philosophy, is it? Master of philosophy? history from Northwestern, and a doctorate in African-American studies from Duke University. Thank you for being with us today, Mark. Thank you. Good to be here. Dr. Elgendorf, you know, you know that uh, our podcast really is meant to be a conversation about how it is that we're going to really do more to, to eradicate the, the issues of racism in this country, specifically. Um, and we've talked a lot with uh, folks about, especially educators, about how it is that um, we talk about racism, and you and I share, um, you know, a, a lighter skin tone um, than most people who are taking on this topic. And so, um, with with a, a doctorate in Africology or African American Studies, how, how did you get there? What what is right. it that you know made you want to pursue that? And what where did your passion come from? Okay, well, I'm a '60s guy, and I was very engaged in the Civil Rights Movement in the '60s. I worked for local leaders in Madison and worked with some of the Black Panthers and we even started a boycott. <clears throat> when I was at the University of Wisconsin, there was no African-American history professor. So a number of students went to the administration and said, how can in the 60s, in the middle of the Civil Rights Movement, <clears throat> how can you not have an African-American history course, let alone a department? So we got their attention and we basically went for two years to offices, to meetings, to administrative staff. And my senior year, we actually introduced finally an African-American history course. But the Civil Rights Movement was impactful on me for many reasons. Uh, I had tutored young black kids in Milwaukee growing up. And I had always had positive experiences in the black community. I felt comfortable. I felt welcome. Uh, so even though I grew up in Whitefish Bay, uh, I never felt distant from the black experience. And my, my calling, I think, was as a white person to introduce as much African-American history in my life as I could possibly do. So I taught for 40 years African-American history in Boston. And now I'm teaching for the last four years at this institute that I created, African-American history again. And uh, I think for white students in my courses, it was unburdening for them to take the class. Uh, black students were thrilled that some white students wanted to study African-American history. This was at a boarding school in Boston. And white students, to a number, would say, I have unburdened myself. I've been carrying around this baggage of racism or ignorance. Uh, and black students in your class enlightened me 
so many ways, and many of them went on to major in African American studies. These were white students, and the black students uh, taught from their chair. They, they had experiences, obviously, from their own life, their parents, um, and I brought in speakers from all over the country for the course. I had Bob Moses, who was very active in the civil rights movement, come into my class, Cornell West, uh, Skip Gates. I mean, Boston was a rich, rich place for me to bring in, because I knew as a white voice, I didn't have the perspective of black students needed. So through films and guest speakers, seminars, uh, I was able to find black voices that really transformed even black kids. Um, and some of them have gone on to major in African American studies. So I'm quite aware that people want to engage, but they have to do it in a safe place. And I was very insistent on making sure that no comment would be seen as unwelcome, um, sharing a personal experience with Rick Baldwin, uh, Vincent Harding, um, James Lawson. I mean, they were exposed to a big part of the black experience themselves. But the class was seen as a safe place to be vulnerable. I, I think our society is still looking for these safe places to have dialogue between blacks and whites. And it sounds so simple, but there aren't too many forums, really. Universities, colleges, some high schools, churches, synagogues. But it's a few high schools. It I is. mean, it's, a, it's gotten to be a very hot topic, well, exactly. this discussion in, in schools these days. Absolutely. And uh, I'm going to be on a panel at my church, Christ Church in Memphis today, talking about CRT. Well, yeah. But I want to diffuse all of the politicalization and the demonization. Uh, we've been for 30 years in the, in the front lines, in the, in the field, field mines of, of uncovering all this rich black history for 30 years. And that was my experience at Duke. I mean, that material is out there every decade. Every decade of American history, you can have black voices instead of just dotting it with the civil rights movement or slavery, right, tokenism. Every decade, that rich, rich scholarship. So let me ask you about that as a history uh, professor. You know, one, one of the things that I notice often is that uh, control of the narrative is, is vital, uh -huh. especially for messaging and keeping power and control. And so, you know, you say those messages are out there for every uh, decade. My experience is, is that white people have tried to closely control those messages. For instance, the 1619 Project versus right. the 1776 Project. You know, if we can control the narrative about what actually happened, then we can keep power, we can right. keep control over, and we're all organized around these narratives. And I wonder, you know, what are your thoughts about how you, how you bring in an alternative narrative? How do you sit in a room full of white people at Christ Church and have a conversation about CRT? How, how does that happen? What, what, what approach are you using? Well, people do have feelings around the narrative. Um, America is a young country. It doesn't like to face its pain and its suffering and moments of falling short of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution. Um, so you have to make people feel not threatened, but to know that if you don't confront the dark side, the painful side of history, you're always going to be teaching half-truths. 
we've had this great man theory of history too long that we teach presidents supreme court opinions ninety percent of the history is about social lives and black and poor people and we just as a narrative have never really taught that and yet the scholarship is there you have to get it into the schools that narrative can change and it doesn't have to be all about the dark side because we have to teach both slavery and freedom were joined at the hip when this country started and you've got to teach that it doesn't mean that you stay in slavery the whole year but they have to understand that there were two motives in this country's history one white dominance and the other freedom and that tension between the freedom and white dominance has to be taught but you can teach it in, in an inspirational way I mean during Reconstruction after the Civil War there were several black political leaders 26 people were in Congress from the South all black two senators from Mississippi people don't know that they don't yeah that's they don't know that so they're worried oh it's just always going to be about slavery no black achievement black growth black uh, invention invention mm -hmm. I mean all, Black History Month celebrates that, right. but it doesn't get into the. I studied textbooks for two years, and you get a sentence or two, in spite of the prejudice, blacks help <coughs> each other, something like that. That's it, one sentence in a textbook. So, so, so let me press on you a little bit, though. Yeah. You know, with, with regard to the teaching part of this in history textbooks, and, you know, we're seeing today unprecedented. Um, you know, action on the part of school boards, uh, you know, in Texas, in Idaho, and, and it's been tried in Wisconsin plenty. Right. You know, we're not going to talk about CRT. You can't teach racism. We're going to talk about, you know, um, Juneteenth or celebrations around Martin Luther King Day. We're going to take the day off. You know, this, this is where white people are putting their dime down these days. And, you know, I'd love to hear what you think uh, and how you teach about that to people who are um, black, who are sitting watching white people today, sort of shut down um, this messaging and, and, you know, what is it about? Where does it come from? It can't just be fear. I mean, is it? This is a young country. It's an immature country. It's an adolescent country. And an adolescent country doesn't want to confront its limitations. I mean, I'm using the analogy of an adolescent country. Cornell West talks about this. Okay. Yeah. We haven't grown up. We haven't faced not just fear, we haven't just faced our shortcomings. And, and where we fell short on the Constitution, Declaration of Independence. A, a mature country understands that these uncovered, forgotten truths will liberate us all. Once you do that kind of self-examination and national self-examination, then you have growth. We're stuck. James Baldwin talks about white people are trapped in their history. Trapped. And they have to get unstuck. And he said it takes a dialogue. It's going to allow a safe place for blacks to not accuse but challenge whites. And whites have to look for healing. I know that sounds very spiritual. But until you have a safe place where real healing and dialogue can take place, I think we're still stuck. I've seen this in my whole life. And so the institute that you created is really meant to do some of Absolutely. That. Yeah. And it's, and it's fascinating to see uh, people who had never had this history in high school and college. I'm teaching people 50 and older in the institute. 
And they're liberated now because they finally know this history. And they never knew it. They never heard of Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, Rosa Parks, they knew vaguely. They didn't know that she was part of the NAACP, field secretary, that she calculated when she was going to sit on the bar. All that history they didn't know. They thought she was just tired one day and put her shopping bags down. Mm. So, yeah, an immature country. We, we need to mature on race. And it goes beyond, I think you're right, fear. An inability to examine in depth your nation's history. Uh, you do it in therapy, you know, when people need therapy, they, well, maybe the nation needs the therapy. Are you a rarity? Black students would say, if more white people were like you, there wouldn't be a problem. So I guess <clears throat> that that was quite an honor to hear that, that they say that. Be, and I, I could see why they would say that, uh, because I've been compelled from the moment I met you and John Hayden, and like I'm just not used to hearing white men say the kind of things that you say. And I'm just, and, I, and my question to John over lunch one day was, you know, you're a retired lawyer. What you are doing and what you have done, you know, how do you see using this to make a difference, let's say, in the legal system, which we know has quite a history toward, you know, black and brown people? Um, how, how do you respond to that? How, how do we get more individuals either to, think like you, to act like you, to create institutes to make this um, uh, more applicable in our schools right. and other places. Yeah. Well, I think in the churches, you've got to have seminars and panel discussions and almost make it a requirement. If, if you're walking the Christian walk and don't see that racism is a deep, deep issue in your life. That's, yeah, right? yeah, yeah absolutely. Mean, Joshua Heschel calls it Satan, Satanism and racism. But, yeah, you, that's the place to start, I think. You have to use... So, 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 dare I say, Lutheran and Catholic schools should have no excuse. Exactly. Okay. It, it's part of the spiritual journey that you confront issues that have always been not, never confronted before. And I think churches and synagogues just have to be on and schools. Schools are a great place to do this, really. I found my 17, 18, 19 year olds were so open. And I said earlier about using their baggage, their racial, they have racial fatigue. And these classes address racial fatigue in a way that is inspiring and liberating. But they walk around thinking nothing's going to change. And you've got to have these change agents in schools, <coughs> churches, synagogues. Politics is hard. You know, John Lewis, they said, was the conscience of Congress. Well, that's only one man, but we don't we don't have them anymore, right? No. So, so one of the things that, to your point about high schools and schools and churches and you know, if we're walking the walk as Christians, I mean, love thy neighbor is the central tenet of, of the Christian faith. I mean, that that is one of the the greatest command that, that Christ gave to. People, um, the, the schools. What what 
I've been fascinated by is this notion that if you look at what it is that it's going to take to change, it's going to take a social awareness, a social connectedness mm -hmm. that's going to change this issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, where are people most open to that social connectedness and social change? It's when they're younger. Right. You know, it's when they're not married, don't have kids. You know, as people yeah. get older, they might still have strong social connections, but their sphere gets smaller right. and, and more familiar. Right, because these are the people I've always hung out with, and yeah. young people are trying to meet people. They want to find their spouse. They're yeah. out there being social. That's the time to really hit this topic mm -hmm. hard. And it must be that politicians across this country knew that was the right place to go, right? Because that's where these laws came from. That's where these discussions about anti-CRT, all of that, you know, really got going. Yeah. So it must be that we know how to fix the problem, right. and it's through educating through these kinds of conversations. Yeah. And I'm confident because I've seen over 40 years young people really change. This was a boarding school and we would have residential life meetings every two weeks and the complexion of our dorm was a third Hispanic, a third black, and a third white. Very diverse boarding school. And they roomed together, they talked about each other's backgrounds, their stories. What an education. I would say to them, you probably will never live such a diverse residential community the rest of your life. And for four years at least they had that kind of experience. So it's a, it's a huge question you're asking me. How do you replicate what we had for four years when they were, and then they want to have more of that. They don't want to go to all white school or a school that doesn't have diversity. So that's the kind of impact and that's why I'm hopeful if we can set up more programs, projects, institutions kids are hungry for this, I think. So, you know, um, I was looking the other day on Stanford's website, uh, their Center for Educational Policy Analysis has a map of the United States, and it shows the disparity between black and white learning, the gap. Mm -hmm. And um, the two worst states in the union are Wisconsin and Nebraska. Uh, you know, those of us from Wisconsin aren't very surprised by that, but, you know, what do those two states have in common one of the things is the homogeneity of the communities in which we live. Mm -hmm. And that notion of living together, you know, um, the benefit of young people having those relationships mm -hmm. that they had in that dorm, Corey being my friend, you know, the, mm -hmm. the other uh, students and professors that I have here being my friends, people that I love and care about, you know, that impacts me and it impacts the way that I right. think about these issues and the problems and learn. Yeah. And it motivates that learning to some degree as a white man. Right. You know, I have to have these. But people don't live in those kind in, right. in, in this state, for sure, people don't live in those kinds of communities. We've segregated ourselves as white people. Mm -hmm. Black people have been segregated, you know, through redlining and um, neighborhood practices and that kind of thing. So how do we cross these bridges? Where, does, where do we go next? Um, you know, besides just having an institute, how do we get the message to the people who don't want to hear it? Well, the workplace is more integrated than the church. And maybe we have to start there. People are rubbing shoulders with people from different backgrounds where they work, unlike the church or synagogue experience where it's pretty segregated. So I, and I know there's a whole diversity industry. We could be cynical about it because people are making money. But a lot of institutions are recognizing that they've got to help their employees become comfortable with difference. So that's 
one of my hopes that these institutions of, of employment actually address these issues. I think they are. And I don't know how successful. We had a wonderful program at my school. It was, it was led by a, a wonderful person who had, we had 10 black teachers on our faculty and they were in the program and about 10 whites. And we lived together for over a year in intense meetings every other week, sharing our, our, our stories, our backgrounds, changing for a lot of people. You talk about breaking down barriers. Um, it's called vision. And they're still in existence and they go to schools, colleges, um, private sector, and they work on diversity. And that's all they do. And they have some very professional people. So it's out <coughs> it's out there. It's just not reaching enough. Right. I have a statement I would love you to respond to and then perhaps a follow-up question. Uh, I'm wondering if things like Black History Month, Women's History Month, uh, Latino Week, I'm wondering if things like that, which are well-intentioned, I wonder if they simply support the status quo and so those charged with leading a building like a principal or a superintendent of a district, they can rest their hat or they can rest their laurels on checking the box by saying we have a black history program. So I, I would love your Women's History Month event. Uh, I, I wonder your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. And then as a follow-up, in our conversation this morning, you've already dropped a ton of names of great authors and great activists, uh, you know, as a follow-up to Joseph's point about how do we reach those who may think differently or otherwise, uh, what would you suggest someone who is um, maybe resistant, what, what should they start reading? I mean, there is a lot out there, mm -hmm. but where, quite frankly, where should the racist begin in terms yeah. of his or her self-knowledge? So, again, the statement is, do things like Black History Month Women's History Month, do those things simply support the status quo? Yeah. Um, and where, you know, what do we say to the racist uh, or, or to someone who's really resistant to CRT and diversity? Where should they begin? Right, good question. Um, in terms of the Black History Month, schools can make a dirty token. Uh, in fact, I've heard that now, given the climate, they're not even accepting a, an assembly. They don't want to ruffle the feathers. So we can't even do something token like an assembly in some schools. That's discouraging. Yeah, I've lived that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's part of my legacy, yeah. I mean, again, in my school, it wasn't just a token assembly. We had speakers all throughout the month. That's when Cornell West and Skip Gates. So they really felt it was in-depth, the experience. And then I was pushing to require African-American cultural studies every high school. Uh, that goes way beyond the token in Black History Month. And to start reading, I mean, Baldwin's tough to read, but he's so open to whites. His audience is both white and black. So I would I would use James Baldwin Fire Next Time. Make it required reading for every high school student. Um, I mentioned before, um, Skip Gates, 
He's got a wonderful book on Reconstruction. Maybe some of these books are required in the English department. Toni Morrison, she, she's finally in the canon, but get other black writers. So the exposure is consistent throughout your high school career instead of that one day, Black History Month. Um, and I think, you know, I was just going to ask, do you think that those pieces of writing, mm -hmm. you know, for somebody who's 40 and maybe uh, didn't go on to school and, and maybe doesn't do it, a lot of reading are accessible. Yeah. You know, because a lot of times I think of, I think of James Baldwin and I would want to read that with people. Right. You know, I would want to read James Baldwin alongside of people who, um, you know, uh, knew that book, knew his writing, knew his history more, because I don't think he's... Um, you know, simple, you know, uh, non or fiction, you know, kind of, he's, he's a complicated guy right. uh, who, who writes very well. So, you know, do you think people have access to those, those authors and, and that reading? Well, in my institute, they had never read James Baldwin. These are pretty well-educated people. And to get Baldwin was transformation for them. So that's why I mentioned Baldwin. Yeah. They wanted to get more of Baldwin and Morrison it's dense, but they, we worked through it as a group, and, and the results were wonderful because they finally did get it. They said, I never, and Malcolm X, he's tough with the people, mm -hmm. but he'll get you to start thinking about issues that you never thought about before. We're reading the autobiography right now. People are just wanting more. Um, it's exposure, but I, I agree with you. Baldwin, he's pretty dense. You have to do it with a group. People might superficially say, oh, why is he so angry? Well, he's not <laughs> angry. Right? I mean, you hear this all the time. Yeah. Or, or why is he angry? Angry? He's saying that he wants to reach out to you and finally start a dialogue. Um, you know, the, the candy the candy book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, that, that has had, what, two million, three million sales? Pe people... Something happened, we know, with uh, George Floyd. People said, I've got to learn something. That was a wake-up call. It was like Emmett Till in 1954 when he was killed. He just seemed to miss I, perpetuating I know, those, I know. those. You know, Corey wrote a book at that moment in time, really. Um, can you talk about that for a second? You know, really, that moment did something for you. It certainly did. Uh, the, the book dealt with the ref. Uh, referencing is um, uh, <clears throat> I was I was watching I'd seen what happened to Ahmad Arbery and he happened to have been killed on the day that my oldest daughter was born uh, and I'm thinking this could have been her and then Breonna Taylor had happened and then the straw that broke the camel's back for me was George Floyd and looking at this and and it spurred me to write and the the the, uh, the crux of my book is, you know, I get it that America is they don't believe us when we talk about our reality. So I interviewed people that I consider to be white allies in my life, and the book is really uh, for white people by white people. And mm -hmm. and can you help your brother and sister understand how you got to where you are? Because we're not making this up, mm -hmm. right? And so. 
uh, I was I was spurred to write because of George Floyd. I had the chance to uh, spontaneously visit Ground Zero for George Floyd. That those emotions I can't even speak to. I was not prepared to stand in that space, but that did something I think for America, and it, for me, it spurred me to write. And so, um, I, I guess I'm going to build off of that and and ask about your your institute participants. I would assume, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume that the majority of the, of your participants are older whites. Yeah. Okay. Um, you said they're educated, they've lived their lives, maybe they're in their 50s, 60s, maybe older. I guess the question I have is now what? Like, I'm thrilled to hear that they're receiving this. Um, what's, what's next for them? What do you want for them? Right. What, what do they want for themselves? And how are they taking this newfound knowledge and helping to transform either themselves or their communities? Well, in the last four years, we've read 50 books together. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. All African American females are talking about this book, and we put that list together and sent it to every department chairman in the Milwaukee area, suggesting put and, and librarian. It sounds modest, but put some of these titles into your curriculum, into your library, and we've also been writing letters um, to the University of Wisconsin and saying you've got to get college students required this course, and here are here's the curriculum, here's the syllabus. So we're trying to work on the high school and college fronts to expose them. And um, it, it sounds modest, but if you could get high schools to read any one of the books that we've read or these 50, or at least have them in your library, have some attention to their presence in your school. Uh, but we're, we're trying to develop relationships with history chairmen, social studies chairmen, to change their curriculum. That's been our focus. You know, one of the things, um, I think when Corey asked you if you were a rarity, I, I say this with a great deal of respect, so I hope you hear it that way. Um, if, if you walked into my office and I am the superintendent of the school district and you bring in four or five of your institute, um, you know, students along with you or participants along with you or to a school board meeting, um, there is still something that your age your education, um, you know, your presence in a discussion in that venue about this topic. Uh, there's a gravitas to that, that, that you know, perhaps uh, I don't bring alone. Do you, do you know what I mean? Right. Like there's, when you and John Hayden show up and start to talk about how you've dedicated your lives, how you, you know, changed uh, your paths, right. because this was that important to you because of the color of your face, yeah. Because of your age, mm -hmm. you bring a different power to that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, you know that that I, I don't know that people who are listening to this get to see you. You know, yeah. but you know there's there's an impressive, um, unmistakable uh, you know sort of air that you bring into a room, mm -hmm. just because of of how you've lived your life. Uh -huh. And they, you know, maybe that's a challenge more than anything, yeah, but take your show on the road yeah. and show up at a school board meeting with a bunch of your institute folks. Right. And, you know, the articulateness that you bring to this topic, nobody sitting at most of those tables across the state of Wisconsin is going to have a clue what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah. do, do, do you think? I mean, listen. Yeah, no, you're right. Amen. You yeah, know, you're right. I think, I think that they're in your passion. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I struggle with, perhaps, uh, 
this is maybe Mark where where we can um, jump off. But one of the things I think is missing in this discussion about CRT in school districts across this country is there's no other side mm -hmm. because there aren't enough white people who've read enough, right. who know enough to tackle the topic. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess you know, at least I haven't seen it. Have no, you seen right. it? No. Five or forty students in the institute, and they feel so empowered when you ask what do we do next. It was their initiative. They got all this knowledge late in their life, and they want to share it and move people, move and shape issues and institutions. But before they had the knowledge, they felt incompetent. Mm -hmm. They felt like, what can they say? To sound like an ignorant white person. Yeah. No, I get it. It's so empowering, right? And to black kids. To read about all these people in their history, the forgotten voices, and to see that they made such a difference, they walk out of those classes even nervous, feeling like this is the knowledge I need. But also, somebody saw me. Yes. Saw me, you know, yes. for who I am. Yes. Um, you know, I guess um, my my passion in this area is um, born out from those kids too. You know, I, I worked in a high school and, and I taught kids and they came to me and said, we need to do something about racism in the school. And so, so we tried that. We tried to do that. And when we did, we got a very visceral response from the community about, mm -hmm. we're not talking about white privilege. We're not, you know, I worked hard to get what I've got. And, you know, you know the narratives, right. the counter narratives, uh, you know, that have, that, have, that have been out there. One, one of the things that I think um, has to happen as part of um, white people's, you know, uh, journey in, in, in the problem of racism in this country is we have to go a little further than we're comfortable, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, and you've done this all your life. And I wonder if you feel ever in your life like you were on the outside of being white, that you didn't belong to the white community with some people right. because of what you chose to study, the passion you brought to the topic, or the institute that you right, started. Right, absolutely. You know, when you talk about comfort levels, the notion that the, the, the movement now is that the student will feel uncomfortable if they're exposed to the black experience in, in a classroom. Well, black students and black people have been uncomfortable for 300 years. Yeah. And this moment yeah. of being uncomfortable, I mean, I, I, I couldn't say this to a group of whites, I wouldn't go anywhere probably, but think about who's been uncomfortable with history. Yeah. And now you're worried that for a minute or two or class that your son or daughter won't be able to handle the stories and make them uncomfortable. Feel shamed or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's so imbalanced in terms of that argument. Yeah, and, and when, when, I, uh, when I held this assembly and, and took this stand, um, you know, after that, there are people who you thought... I, I've invested with you, you're my yeah. friend, and they don't want to talk anymore. Yeah. They're mad at you for having broached what has to be this sacred seal on, on this topic bottle, you know, kind of thing. Um, and so you kind of get moved outside of. You're, you're now other than, mm -hmm. you know, your tribal uh, membership is gone from the white, right. you know, tribe or whatever with some people yeah. because of their belief system. Have you experienced this? You know what I, I mean? did. I did. I uh, initially white faculty members were wondering why I was so passionate about black history, 
and why the black kids are always saying, Mr. H, he really tells us the truth in class. What does he make for uh, a popularity contest? What is he doing in that classroom where they're saying he's speaking the truth? Am I not teaching the truth? Well, you don't teach it the way he does. So I had a lot of white resistance. But as I got to be known and seen as I wasn't dangerous, Although there were people who thought, you know, he shouldn't be teaching that course. It's empowering. Oh, they would say it's empowering students. That was wow. that was the criticism of the course. They're getting empowered. They're raising tough questions. Oh boy! Isn't that how dare they in an educational yeah. environment? Can you imagine <clears throat> to, wow. to be criticized for empowering students. Yeah, disempowering. Well, that is. That is how we've controlled the narrative, though. Yeah. I mean, those yeah. are the kinds of things, you know, keep people down, it keeps you up. Right. Right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's the sort of notion. But. Right. So, so when um, folks finish the Institute, I don't know if they finish the Institute, yeah. but, um, you know, so what, what do they do with it? Where do they go? What's well, the next thing for them? I think they want to, this is tricky, because if you go to a school where you list a book, you're going to be seen as an outsider. Mm -hmm. So the challenge is to make connections with people inside the institution who might be their advocates. They're, they're so zealous, they want to just go in there and, and reform education. And I say, put some brakes on your, your passion and figure out what is going to be effective as a strategy. And uh, I, I think they, they have to really do the hard work of knowing, listening, people in those institutions. Now we're, we're going to have a panel discussion, two White Fish Bay teachers, an African American man who's teaching black history at White Fish Bay, and a white guy who's teaching in, in middle school. And they're going to be at, all my students will be at this panel discussion. So uh, that's another way to reach people. But unless you're in the institution and have credibility and acceptance, you're seen as an outsider. So, I, I'm curious if you have ideas on that one. Well, go. Well, so I mean, my mind is racing. Uh, I, I was thinking of Joseph and all the students that we have, doctoral students, um, people studying to be principals, the teacher ed program. You know, could we send you five, six, seven of our students? to attend uh -huh. your institute? Could we be intentional? Could we do another session like this somehow to put you on the radar of our students who are wanting to be teachers or who are already teachers or they want to be principals? You know, can we infiltrate, uh -huh. for lack of a better word, your institute so that in hopes that they will then take that learning back to their buildings? Uh -huh. That's one thought I'm having. Yeah. And, and my, my thought for your current students would be, you know, this, um, simply that schools have changed. It used to be that if you wanted to impact curriculum, you went to see the curriculum director, you went to see the superintendent, you went to see the principal. Those folks have lost control over making choices in their districts anymore because of school boards that have been intentionally elected. There is a specific intentional effort on the part of belief systems, people who hold belief systems, to infiltrate into school boards and get people elected onto school boards so that they can quash and control messaging. Right. And so that's, 
that's the CRT thing. So, you know, we went from the, the origins of public education in this country being about, um, you know, commonality, that there were a number of things that you had to know to be a participant in a democracy. And that list piled up over time, right? right. We, all of a sudden, yeah. health education, sex education, mm -hmm. you know, all those things that got put on education. But all of it was meant to be the best way we could target social issues at, at our society to change things, right? Well, now all of a sudden, the messaging, counter-messaging, the response narrative is you're the parent, you get to say what your kid takes and doesn't take, what topics they'll sit in for, which ones they won't. So it really doesn't matter if you're an outsider in this message anymore. In my, in my way of thinking, outside is fine. What brings power to the discussion for me is the age of the people who are coming in, right. their life experiences and whatever else, and that they're white. Yeah, That's what changes this, you know, because right now the only white voice that's heard in this whole discussion is the one that's saying right. no. Right. You're you know, right. And, and, and this is my, my one piece of, uh, you know, sort of edgy admonishment. The 60s folks were supposed to change the world, right. and then they all went away. Right. And I'm like, now if you got some time, you right. know, if you wouldn't mind, change the world. Yeah. You know, like there's some yeah. stuff to do. No, you're right. I mean, one way it sounds, again, not as, I worked at St. Martha's School yeah. in San Paulo North mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for two years. And um, the faculty was all white, one black woman teaching, and the textbook for the American history course was a 1994 textbook. Had no mention other than like a sentence on Martin Luther King. Yeah. We know that these dated textbooks, white teachers teaching all black kids American history. So at least I was an insider. I, I taught, I did some seminars there, special teaching, tutoring, and I was able to get the white faculty to start reading the James Baldwins in the its entirety. And they had never in their education been exposed to one black boy. You know this. All black kids. And the, the, meeting, the meeting before this podcast was just about this. Really? Marie and I were just we're getting ready to educate a group next week in the same situation. I said, Marie, you were going to step into an all-white faculty teaching in a predominantly black school with dated materials. And they want to know how to be more culturally responsive. Well, they, they, they're looking for a, a magic pill. Well, that magic pill begins with that internal... What you know. That's right. So, yeah, I, I, you know this. I do know this. And if I had not been teaching the school for two years and had come with my list... Yep. Status quo. The impact would have been limited. Who is this outsider telling us, us teachers, we, we, our faculty, we need to educate ourselves? But I had credibility. And I think my approach, I didn't threaten people. I said, you're going to be a more confident teacher the history of the students you teach, right? And they bought that argument. But even, you know, for us, we, we do leadership. I mean, that's, right. that's our business. Yeah. And it's inexcusable in my mind that our students would leave here and not know how to lead in a diverse world. Yeah. Yeah. That, they, that they would, you know, sort of choke on. In fact, the whole service year of the doctoral program in this building is nothing but you're going to lead in, in a diverse world. It's all the isms, right. you know, 
and, and, and tackling those and thinking about yours and what, what do you see in the world around you? Because I think we walk away from things. And, you know, I, I write about this a good bit. And one of the things that I was just thinking about and writing about the other day is this notion of um, commonly accepted white narratives. They're response narratives, but they run through every white person's head. You know, when you hear something, and, and you'll recognize them, you know, their laziness, their lack of family structure, you know, there's stuff that, that uh, has been taught to people over time, and when you hear it, you kind of go, oh. I think this about when I grew up in a, in a, a small uh, town in Wisconsin, a white community, if there was a black child in school, parents would say, oh, is he adopted? And then they would say, oh, yeah. When you, you know, like when you recognize, because it's the only way that a black person would ever move into a white community. It's the only thing I can think today. But there was this recognition that white people are the only ones that live here, right? The black people don't live here. Um, those are narratives that, you know, over time get ingrained into people's heads. And I think, like you talked about therapy, you've got to deprogram some of that stuff from your thinking in order to be effective as, as a human being in this world. I mean, that's just bald-faced truth about it. Like, you have to deprogram mm -hmm. um, those messages. Yeah. How often in the Institute do you get to get into that kind of conversation? It comes up often. Uh, people talk about their own growth, growth in the course, in the Institute, and uh, they're willing to admit their ignorance that kept them from even trying to make black friends here. They felt uncomfortable most of their life. Well, I would be seen as an outsider, a racist, and it, it's, it's appalling to me how many of these bright people in my institute have never had a close black friend. And I said, you're never going to unburden yourself from all of this unless you have that. You're always going to wonder, well, what am I? Who am I? Well, how am I perceived? Again, gets to the point of segregation. Can I can I make a point that this is this is a, as much an admission and a, a, you know a moment of pause for for me and my family. Um, so we have this little black dog that you know came from the pound. She's a mutt, and um, my boys have got a couple of friends who are black, and when they come to the house, my dog loses it, loses it for the last time that. Uh, one of the boy's friends came in. He looked at me and said, Mr. Moylan, you have got to have more black people to your house. That dog doesn't know <laughs> what's going on. And I thought, oh, man, maybe this is right. You know, like maybe this is true because my dog loses her stuff. You know, hard to call your dog racist, but she sure does, she sure does know what she doesn't know, maybe, you know. So this point from this kid, I was like, yeah, but your point about friendship, exposure, relationship, love, like those are the things that motivate us as people socially. Well, it is encouraging at St. Marcus, these were white teachers, all under 31, mm -hmm. who wanted an urban experience instead of the sake of suburban. So that, I felt, was encouraging. Yeah. They did choose to teach at St. Marcus rather than Charwood or it's a start. It's a start, but yeah. their background yeah. is just so limited, and therefore they're very uncomfortable when any racial issue comes up. Right? Do you do that here? Do you have 
in terms of design being the urban system? Yeah, we've done a lot of Teach for America uh -huh. uh, students. We've you go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So we've had a partnership with Teach for America. One of the <clears throat> responsibilities that I have is I'm the director of uh, PMAC, which is Project Metro Alternative Certification Program. It's a partnership with Milwaukee Public Schools to fill hard to fill classrooms, and those are defined as high school math, high school science, special ed, and, and bilingual classrooms in MPS. And so students who want to be in PMAC, they know this is going to be my demographic. This is going to be the population I work with. So absolutely. And, and to Dr. Moylan's point, you know, shame on us if we don't do our part in helping to prepare them to be culturally relevant mm -hmm. teachers. You know, they are going to be, in many cases, they are going to be the minority in the classroom, mm -hmm. and they need to become comfortable and confident in that. Yeah. And uh, otherwise, it's going to limit their teaching. It's going to limit their ability to interact with right. kids. So, yes, uh, you know, Joseph's going to know one of my favorite words is intentionality. I think we do a really good job of being intentional, mm -hmm. but there's always more that we can do. Thus, this podcast, thus having people like you. I mean, my mind is spinning about how many ways we can continue right. to work with you, with our teacher candidates, uh, with teachers within uh, within the system, both charter and choice. Right. You know, St. Marcus is a choice school. You're right. You know, it's a start. These are young people who, who for some Part, you know, they understand what they're getting into, but they really don't. Right. Uh, but at least they want to be there. They don't fear the children. At least they don't fear them directly. Right. But I think their 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 um, perceptions of their children may have been uh, certainly influenced by their own schooling sure. and their own communities. Sure. Right. So, yeah. so, so one of the things, just a moment of again, uh, Joseph Moylan commentary on, on this topic. But you know. Uh, your institute is is placed correctly yeah. with the generation of people that it's serving, mm -hmm. and I'm I'm amazed by um, the number that want to be part of and that that it's doing well. That's that's fantastic and well placed. Mm -hmm. the, the danger, I suppose, in this conversation always is that we replace history with cultural history. So it's not just important to te teach African American history to Black children. It's important that white children learn it. Mm -hmm. Black children have had to learn white history forever, right. but history is history. It's one thing. Mm -hmm. And that's why this sort of battle over narrative is so important. Because, you know, your the folks that are in your institute would say, we didn't learn this. Mm -hmm. And nobody would have expected they did back in those right. days. But today, right. that it's being fought to have it be part of a curriculum, yeah. it really is for us older folks to make the case that we've, we've got yeah. to make sure that never again in the history of this country, I mean, these are primitive hatreds, yeah. and they're not unique to the United States. And that, you want to tell Mark what you're... Well, I was just remarking with Joseph this morning how on my recent pilgrimage to Assisi, you know, the, the, the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine broke out, and I'm on this pilgrimage, and... And I'm seeing images of people of color in Ukraine being pushed off of trains or not being allowed to leave. And so th this, this is a disease that is, goes far beyond America, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely. Um, but we want to be, we, we, we talk off all, all the time in the United States about wanting to be the best. Right. Well, being the best isn't being, you know, subjugating a whole 
group of right. people. That's where I go for such an immature nation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The wisdom term. isn't there. It, this is enlightening to everyone. I mean, it, it's still tribal. It feels, it feels, it, it, it feels very tribal, right? I mean, that's the... the um, protecting their turf. I mean, and and that's what I was alluding to with you, you know, when you take on the role of teacher of African-American history, right. you know, you leave the tribe. Right. And so, you know, now you're out there kind of uh, fanning in the wind, for lack of a better way to, right. to put it, you're on your own. You don't have the backup no. of a group of people who are going to stand with you if you got in trouble, right. you know, necessarily. Right. And so, so it is otherism. It's yeah. us and them. It's, you know, however you want to put that. And that's the disease part, yeah. is the otherism. I am hopeful. I, I don't know what the time limit is here. Yeah, we're, we're getting there. But uh, I am hopeful because I think George Floyd, Trayvon Martin, people are waking up. And I know there's now this cynicism about woke culture. I mean, yeah. that's a whole other issue. And conservatives are all over that. And I wish the term weren't used. But I think that people are seeing this for the first time. They've got to know this history. And the book sales for the Kennedy book and other books like it, Life of Chile, and go on and on. They're cast. Cast. We read that at yes. in my institute. Yep. People are reading. And you ask what books to People want this. It's a small group. But James Baldwin said it's always going to be a creative minority that changes things. So you don't wait for the majority. King, Martin Luther King said that. It's a, it's a committed creative minority of people, white and black, who are going to do this. And I'm, I'm going to, uh, you know, I was, and if, I'll, just a plug for another podcast, I was telling Corey about, if you haven't listened to Throughline on NPR, uh -huh. is a great uh, podcast, and they were, they were talking about um, Martin Luther King and the March on Washington, and how it got organized, and um, Rustin, um, Bernard Rustin um, was, uh, you know, a huge part of organizing and right. getting people to Washington. And they did a whole history on Throughline uh -huh. on, on Bernard's life. And, you know, interestingly, Bernard had uh, the, the unfortunate intersectionality for the time in his life that he was gay and black. Right. And so when he came to this and really was going to lend his efforts to this volunteer, you know, organization, um, there were people who didn't want him to participate because he was gay and that might make things look very different, you know, or whatever. I think we're at a point in this world where all of us have to lend our efforts yeah. to understanding everyone. And I think this about the discussion about transgender kids, you know, um, right. in schools. It's not our lived experience. This isn't our life. Right. I don't understand it. Okay, but I gotta help them to be right. the most successful they can be if I'm an educator or a parent or a community member, because they yeah. need to be the most successful them they can be, because they might be handing me my medicine someday or yeah. taking care of me in the nursing home, right? right? Yeah. So we're being a little short-sighted in yeah. our immaturity for sure. Yeah. Dr. Hilgendorf, I just, as we get ready to wrap up, just a little bit more about the Institute. If people are interested in being a part of it, right. how do they find you? How do they locate you? Again, I, I go back to, I made the assumption that the majority of your members are, are older white individuals. Uh, I can only imagine that having 
a more diverse institute with just deepened experience. Uh, so can you just speak to that yeah, for our listeners? How do they get a hold of you? How do they finance? Where are yeah, you located? I should have brought my, my business card. Yeah. As a teacher, we don't know how to promote ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I would love, I mean, I could see teaching a younger group in the Institute. Uh, I don't know what their schedules would be like, but that's one thought. Um, and I also think uh, maybe bringing this to here to, to, to let them see what has been happening, to meet a group of potential teachers and talk about their experience and their knowledge and what books they need to read. I could do more reaching out. Two things. They can either join the Institute, but I think it would have to be a separate group because of different interests and age differences. I, I have to think about that, whether a 20, 21-year-old would want to be in an Institute with older folks. I don't know. It might make more sense to do it as a separate Institute. Um, I would think that it would work great. I mean, to have a yeah, I, I, you know, there's a difference in understanding and experience and you know, the, the real divide between generations today is technology, right? right. I mean, that's, right. but it's not wisdom and life experience. Right. So. Well, that's, that's certainly a possibility. Yeah. To have young voices in the Institute. Yeah, it's important, I think, that white people experience uh, the information that oh. you're doing in the Institute. But I also think it's important for um, black people to hear that there are white people who are invested. I mean, part yeah. of the reason that Corey and I have designed the podcast to include white voices is we want um, there to be a message of hope for uh, folks who are out there in the world and think that maybe there aren't any white people who, you know, the, the, you're a rarity. We're finding out you're not so rare, and we're really encouraged by it, and it's, yeah, it's been absolutely. a lot of fun. Really, thanks, thanks oh, for your time today. Absolutely. I mean, this is an important discussion that we hope to continue and, and find ways to to engage with yeah. you in, in this discussion further. I see this as more of a start. And, and those young voices in my institute would be so appreciative. So appreciative. And that would be empowering to them to see what they can bring. Nice. So, Thank you so much. Thanks, thanks so much for your time today. And uh, yeah. hopefully uh, we'll hear good things about what's going on from the institute okay. in the future. Okay. You've been listening to Education Conversations with Corey Thompson and Joseph Boylan. Please leave us a comment about questions you have or thoughts about future episodes for us on Anchor. Thank you for listening.